Want to go further at every stage of your medical career? Learn how MD Financial Management and Scotiabank Healthcare Plus help physicians go further together with insights and solutions focused on the financial health of physicians. Whether you've just been accepted to medical school or you're getting ready to retire, we will understand and anticipate your needs every step of the way. To learn more, visit md.ca slash go further. I'm Blair Bigham. I'm Mojala Male, and this is the CMAJ Podcast. So this episode, we're going to be discussing a paper in the CMAJ entitled Functional Neurological Disorders Associated with the SARS-CoV-2 Vaccine. So the commentary took a case study to just talk about functional neurological disorders, and they talked about a patient who had this um, experience with uh, neurological changes after getting their first vaccine. And, you know, then just talked about functional neurological disorders, how it's diagnosed, and just like, you know, the novel treatment options that are there, out there for uh, patients. For me, I obviously, I don't see a lot of neurological disorders as a surgeon, but I do see a lot of functional disorders that are GI related. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think that even when I was in training, we diagnosed people as psychosomatic and, you know, which is quite uh, labeling and could be demeaning to patients and almost condescending to uh, to be saying that. And so this was really interesting because even though it was neurological, it really gave me a great insight into just the the neurobiology of functional disorders in general. So I'm really excited to talk to the author of the paper and uh, to the patients regarding just their experience with this and, you know, how, what treatment looks like and what options there are for patients uh, with these disorders. So let's jump into it, Jola. We're going to speak with Dr. Matthew Burke, one of the co-authors of the paper in CMAJ. But first, we're going to hear a first-person account from someone diagnosed with a functional neurologic disorder. As a professional musician, Peter Gill had made a living off his voice and his hands. At some point, the repeated use and strain took their toll, but what started as seemingly straightforward injuries from overuse cascaded into a devastating set of neurological symptoms and, eventually, a diagnosis of functional neurological disorder. Peter, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to join you. Now, I just said eventually you were diagnosed with functional neurologic disorder. How long did that take from when your symptoms first began? The onset of symptoms came in several stages. So I first lost the use of my voice, followed by problems with my hands, and then eventually more general problems with mobility and walking, as well as a lot of uh, chronic pain and fatigue. So that probably took, I'd say, about two and a half years to fully reach the full expression of the symptoms. Wow. Can you tell me a little bit about what it was like to go through those symptoms when they were at their worst? Yeah. So when symptoms were at their worst, I was essentially unable to walk. I used a wheelchair for about a year and had a lot of trouble with my hands. I could move my hands, but they were very weak. So I had problems with grip strength and holding onto objects. And I had months at a time where I essentially could not speak or could not speak for prolonged periods of time. So I used to write in notebooks to my friends, spent a lot of time typing on laptops to people and things like that. So it, it was pretty disabling. It was pretty serious. Peter, how did this all begin? This began with a vocal injury for me. So the first thing that happened was I had been out 
with my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, and we were celebrating her birthday in a pub. And I had a number of concerts before that that were hard on my voice. And we were out at this pub celebrating her 25th birthday. And at some point in the night, I felt my voice just give out. And to be honest, I didn't think that much about it at the time. I knew that I was in a performance industry and I knew that these things could happen. And I just didn't think it was going to be that big of a deal. So I remember going home to rest and waking up the next morning and still not being able to sleep or not being able to speak rather. And I went to uh, an ENT who told me that I had an injury to my vocal folds, but that it would heal in a couple weeks and to be on voice rest in the meantime. So I went on voice rest for a couple weeks and didn't speak during that time. And at the end of that couple weeks, the ENT expected that my voice would return, but it really didn't. And in many ways, what I experienced was a sort of continuation of the ghost of that injury, as if the injury was still present when it in fact was not, but it had been sort of pattered into my brain, unfortunately. Can you tell us how the symptoms progressed after the speech problems? Yeah. So I had the speech problems first. I saw a speech language pathologist for that. They gave me exercises, which helped somewhat. And as I was going through that process, recovering from one condition that seemed impactful enough at the time, I gradually noticed that I was beginning to feel a kind of tingling and pain in my hands. And then one morning I woke up and had this very electric, very bright, very sharp pain in my in both my wrists. And within a couple hours of feeling that pain, I lost my ability to use my hands. So at that point, I thought I was just unlucky. I thought, well, I had a speech thing and now I have a hand thing because I'm using my voice and my hands so much. And I just thought I was tremendously unlucky, really. And it was about a year after that, that I lost my ability to walk. And that was when I realized that I might be dealing with something that's a really different character than just a repetitive strain injury, which was scary. Peter, I come from a family of musicians. I think I'm the only one who doesn't have a musical gift. But knowing how personal their life is with music, this must have been pretty devastating to start losing some of your musical abilities. What did this do for your career as a musician, for your sort of self-identity as a, as a musician? Well, the effect on my career can be said pretty simply. It ended it. I never was able to fully come back from the damage that I took in the course of my experience with FND. At this point, it really dramatically altered the course of my career. I had been doing quite well up until that point. Um, you know, I had a really successful teaching studio. I was gigging regularly. I was going on tours around the U.S. And I wasn't a well-known musician by any means, but I was also only 24, 25. So I felt like I was immersed in a community that I really felt like I belonged in. And I was doing the work that I wanted to be doing. And I was paying my rent and my student loans at a time when unemployment was really high. And I was doing it with a saxophone. And I was super proud of that. I just loved it. I, lo I mm -hmm. loved that life. And yeah, so being taken out of that and being in some ways incapacitated by a condition that I didn't really understand and which no one seemed to understand caused me a, a great amount of emotional angst. So a quick sidebar, what kind of saxophone? Alto, tenor? I play tenor. Uh, prim primarily alto, but I play all of them. Oh, cool. So I used to play uh, tenor sax. Oh, that's awesome. It's a great, it's a great instrument. It is. I love it. Sorry. No, no that's fine. So Peter, at 
as you start interacting with the healthcare system, as sort of this situation evolves, what was your experience? What happened? So there was an initial phase where the can, the problems that I was having appeared to just be a straightforward injury. During that time, it was treated that way by physiotherapists, by doctors. But then I lost my ability to walk and it happened really fast. Like it was like less than a month going from being able to walk as far as I want to being in a wheelchair, unable to move my legs. And when that happened, I went to see my primary care physician and he was very alarmed and he was not a really emotionally expressive kind of guy. He has kind of a stoicism about him, but I could tell that he was freaked really. Like I, he, it didn't seem like he saw things like this much and everything that he did suggested to me that he thought that it was really dire. So there were a lot of tests that were run. I gave a unfathomable amount of blood in terms of different <laughs> like immunological tests and things that I went through. I was scanned using MRIs from essentially my head to my feet. And they did find some sort of structural things along the way. Like I have a syringomyelia, but ultimately those things didn't map onto the symptoms that I was having. And it didn't really seem plausible that would produce the character of the disability that I have. And so there was this initial rush of copious and, and really extreme testing. And then when they couldn't come up with a decent explanation for why this was happening, everything kind of stopped. And that was when I sort of entered the wastelands of medicine, I think. Can you explain that to me? What did that, what was your experience in that space? Yeah. So I found that after I went through the initial testing, there was a period of almost seven years actually, where it was a continual odyssey of trying to get from one doctor to another and to find somebody who could make any kind of diagnostic progress on this thing. And a lot of different doctors took swipes at it. So I saw ENTs and speech pathologists. I saw a lot of neurologists. I saw rheumatologists and immunologists. I saw physiatrists. I mean, you name it, we've met. And I think a lot of people really gave it their best shot. In that way, I think I did not encounter a lot of the stigma and dismissal that a lot of people with FND do. The doctors seemed to think that what I had was clearly quite serious. They just didn't know what that was. And so typically they would do everything they could as an individual doctor. They would exhaust their toolkit and coming up with nothing, they would essentially throw up their hands. And if I was lucky, they'd refer me somewhere else, but usually not. Usually it was up to me to find the next person. And I ended up being seen at a number of top medical centers in North America. And I saw this thing sort of destroy the edifice of medicinal knowledge. I saw some of the best doctors I could find try their best and come up with nothing, which I have to tell you is even scarier as a patient when you have some idea of what they're trying to do and recognizing that it's not working. So tell me about the diagnosis. How did you eventually get diagnosed? So I was eventually diagnosed at the NIH's clinical center as part of the Undiagnosed Disease Network. And that was a really extensive neurological investigation that they did on my behalf. And that actually incorporated all of my past medical history as well. So they had access to all my medical records. And 
that was, I think they actually knew what I had before I got there. I think they looked at my medical history and they looked at the description Mm. of the symptoms and likely knew what it was before I arrived because a lot of what they did once I got there seemed to be dedicated towards confirming what it seemed like they had already established as well as ruling out other things, genetic disorders, different types of neurological dysfunction, autoimmune conditions that might be potentially in play. And when they had confirmed the symptoms that I had as being functional and when they had ruled out the major classes of other things that they were looking for, essentially the picture was set and the diagnosis happened in, it took them about three days from A to Z to get through that whole thing. Peter, how did you react? I reacted really badly. Yeah, I I imagine. So tell us what it's like when somebody tells you you have a functional illness. It depends how it's explained. In my case, the explanation of FND was fairly short. And I had actually brought a lot of my own bad priors to that conversation. So I hadn't heard about FND in an educated or informed way. I had heard about it as being essentially synonymous with the idea of conversion disorder. And I understood conversion disorder to be a process by which a person represses their emotions or represses traumatic memories and doesn't deal with their emotional life in a mature kind of way. And as a result, it produces this strange kind of disability as a result of that. And I think there's a kind of sort of epistemic terror that comes with that for people who get the diagnosis under that formulation, because essentially the doctor is saying you have so little knowledge of your own life that you produce like your biggest problem and you don't even know it. And I'm here to tell you about it. And if you deny it, that's just further evidence that you're repressing it because of course you can't access it because you've repressed it from memory. So there's a sort of vicious cycle of explanation there that I think is, is really terrible and really, really unscientific. And that was all that I, that was all that I knew at that time was that was the only framework that I had to understand FND. And eventually I came to know it better. And I understood that a lot of those things are not true about it. And Once I came to know FND reasonably well, it did fit my story and it did make sense that things played out the way that they did. But the initial experience of the diagnosis was not a great one. I imagine a lot of physicians out there might also feel similarly around functional disorders. I don't know if it's from a place of frustration or what it is, but did you meet physicians after your diagnosis who maybe were some were more helpful and some were less helpful. And can you help guide us as clinicians as to how we can make those functional diagnoses easier to understand and easier to get through? Absolutely. So I think the first part is just understanding what functional disorders are. And to my mind, functional disorders are not a disease as doctors would traditionally think of it. There's no misfolding proteins. We're not talking about necessarily the presence of a virus in the body or something like that. Those are the kind of things that I think doctors actually feel really comfortable with because of their education. So I think there's a hidden dynamic to the way that doctors often treat people with this condition. And I just want to name it, even though it's uncomfortable. I think sometimes doctors think that people with FND are faking. And they'll treat them badly on that basis. They'll say, essentially, you don't really deserve to be here with my real patients. And that's a real thing. And I don't want to underplay it. But actually, I think there's something that's more common than that, which is that doctors will see someone with FND or some other 
functional symptoms. And they'll recognize that this thing is real and it's actually pretty profound. And I think that they get scared because they feel so unequipped to make sense of this in even a really basic way. And that must be frightening after you've been through all that medical education and spent a million hours as a med student when your friends were partying and now you're supposed to know everything. And yet here's something that appears to challenge just the basic foundations of all this stuff that you were taught, like the whole entire system of ideas and facts seems to be challenged by this thing in front of you. And if that's true, then how much can you really know? And are you actually good at your job? And are you actually helping people? And I think that would explain a lot of the sort of resentment that doctors seem to display for these patients who, again, are doing this. People with FND are not doing this voluntarily. It's a it's an involuntary disability, just like anything else. And I think that when doctors run into this sort of primeval force that is FND, you know, which sort of comes out of these ancient brain mechanisms, I think it's I think it scares them. And I think instead of doing the hard thing, which is going back to basics and saying, what if there's something else out there that works different than the other things I know? They they take the time that they have in the 15 minute appointment. They take the easiest way out, which is essentially either to blame the patient or say this isn't a thing. And one thing I would want doctors to know is that the good news about modern FND science is that there's an answer. There's a better way to do this. You don't have to you don't have to do things that way anymore. And I would encourage them to embrace it. Peter, we're going to be talking to an FND expert in a few minutes, but before we do that, I just want to ask where are your symptoms at now? How's your recovery going? I'm doing well, thank you. I have recovered quite a bit. I'm working full-time for the first time in almost a decade. I my pain levels are much lower than they have been in a long time. At this point, I'm I'm doing quite well and I'm also still quite a ways from being what people would call able-bodied. So, I can walk a mile if I have to, but I can't walk 10. I have kind of a radius and I have to do a lot of management to keep things on track and stay healthy day to day, but it's worth it. And I feel grateful for where I've gotten to. And especially I recognize that the kind of recovery that I've had is often one that most people with FND don't have because they never get diagnosed in the first place. That's amazing. Peter, I think you use the word toolbox and every doctor comes to work every day with a toolbox, which is the accumulation of all of that training. And if we don't have a tool in our toolbox that can fix something, I think we do get frustrated. I think there's a lot of truth to what you said. And like you said, we either refer or we ignore once our toolbox is exhausted. And I'm sorry that you've gone through such a long period of illness to get to where you are today. Thank you. You're a great advocate and an excellent orator. So thank you so much for joining us today and for advocating for functional neurologic disorders. Thank you so much for for taking this on. It was a pleasure to join you. Thank you. Peter Gill lives in Toronto. After the break, we'll be speaking with Dr. Matthew Burke, an expert in functional neurologic disorders. Want to go further at every stage of your medical career? Learn how MD Financial Management and Scotiabank Healthcare Plus help physicians go further together with insights and solutions focused on the financial health of physicians. Whether you've just been accepted to medical school or you're getting ready to retire, we will understand and anticipate your needs every step of the way. To learn more, visit md.ca slash go further. 
So welcome back. Functional neurological disorders are the focus of a paper in the CMAJ entitled Functional Neurological Disorders Associated with SARS-CoV-2 Vaccine. The paper describes a case of FND following vaccination, but it also offers a primer on the condition that is frequently not well understood. Dr. Matthew Burke is a co-author on the paper. He's a cognitive neurologist at Sunnybrook Hospital. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Burke. So just off the top, what were your thoughts on what you heard from Peter? Yeah, so it was a very interesting and eloquent account that he provided. And and I really agree with much of what he said. To start, there are absolutely clinicians, including senior esteemed clinicians that do treat patients like they are faking it or it's all in their head and and really have no concept of the condition in our kind of contemporary understanding of it. And that's a huge problem. And then the second point that Peter says about the the lack of knowledge and being uncomfortable and scared, that also definitely resonates. I think the root of that is the lack of medical education mm-hmm. on the topic in medical school in Toronto, where I trained or across the country. There's really very limited teaching on this topic, despite these patients being very frequent, you know, estimates around maybe 30% of outpatient neurology referrals and similar numbers, probably other med- medical high. subspecialties. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's very common. Matthew, we heard that Peter took many years to be diagnosed. And I imagine that people with these symptoms often get MRIs, they get a perineoplastic workup, they get a rheumatologic workup, they get a Pianka sent. I'm just curious, are there ways that we can fast track the diagnosis? Can you tell me a little bit more about the diagnostic criteria? Yeah, so that's a fantastic question and probably one of the most controversial ones. So the diagnostic criteria that largely the one that people use is the DSM manual, which essentially is pretty vague and does not include specific objective rule-in factors that alludes to the presence of neurological symptoms that are incongruent with recognized medical or neurological diseases and emphasize the importance of neurologic exam and assessment and, and determining that. But unfortunately, right now we don't have any objective measures like a blood test or a brain scan where we can definitively in an objective fashion rule in a functional neurological disorder to avoid these unnecessary, redundant or excessive investigations. What we are getting much better at is for subsets of symptom presentations, most notably the movement or motor presentations of functional neurological disorder, we are getting these clinical rule in signs that can be that can aid in a positive diagnosis that you don't see in other neurological conditions and we outline that in a table in the paper in CMHA but that's only for a subset of the types of presentations that involve abnormal movements or weakness and depending on how much your lump or splitter there are many different types of presentations of functional neurological disorder where it is still largely diagnoses of exclusion There can be some kind of soft positive signs, but it's tricky. And so where you draw the line on the investigations to have the confidence that this is functional neurologic disorder really varies physician to physician and is something we all need to think about and worry about because most physicians are more worried about missing a diagnosis Mm -hmm. than making the correct functional neurologic disorder diagnosis early to avoid the 
potential negative outcome associated with the long delayed a diagnosis. Where does FND fall on the spectrum of neurological versus psychological disorder? Is there any settled science on that? Yeah, so this is a great question. The field that I'm in, in neuropsychiatry, tries to get away from these types of divisions where something's neurological or psychological or psychiatric, because in the end, it's all the same organ. It's the brain. And there are very arbitrary kind of divisions that we make for practical purposes. These disorders are disorders of brain network dysfunction. And that has to do with neurons, their connections in the brain, and whether that falls under neurologic, neurology or psychiatry is arbitrary and, in my mind, really epitomizes the interface between these fields. And I don't see how you could make a great argument to say that they're one or the other. They're both because there are factors that are historically related to both fields. But I really think it's a better to have a paradigm shift that these are brain disorders that kind of fall in between classically described disciplines. And unfortunately, because of that, they've largely slipped through the cracks of both fields and all of medicine, really. Mm, that makes sense. What's the typical way FND progresses in patients? So it's quite variable. And some of the literature on prognosis of patients is surprising in how bad the prognosis can be overall, especially in more severe cases presenting to a neurologist, where there have been studies showing that the prognosis in terms of measures of quality of life and impairment can be similar to other neurological diseases like Mm. Parkinson's disease, for example. But there's a very wide spectrum. One of the important things to emphasize is that these disorders are potentially completely reversible. I've seen cases of that because it's like a software dysfunction, a circuit-based dysfunction that was disrupted and it can be remedied. But we'll see patients who make full recoveries and we'll also see patients who can really be struggling for a very long time and trying to understand why one patient would fall into those different trajectories is is obviously extremely important. I will also say that we do see a lot of comorbid symptoms across medicine, sometimes with this patient population. So they might present with a functional neurological disorder and that might resolve, but then maybe they present later with a chronic pain syndrome or GI, functional GI disorder, because core in the brain is probably this disrupted circuitry that is a foundation for not only the neurologic symptoms, but lots of symptoms we might see in medicine. What are some of the therapeutic options effective for patients who have FND? Yeah, so the first and foremost, and it's often not usually described as a therapeutic option, but the education and counseling to a patient about what the disorder is and giving them an explanation of the mechanism and that they're not crazy or faking it, that in itself is quite therapeutic. Because if we can imagine that maybe part of the problem is this hyperactive stress response centers in the brain, when they're going from doctor to doctor being told, I'm not sure what you have or waiting for these tests, that fuels a lot of the anxiety and uncertainty. And and so being told what what this is and the mechanisms for how it works and that it doesn't equate to it's all in my head or I'm faking it, um, 
I think is extremely important and and really is the first step in management, along with different resources. You can provide them with more full information, like neurosymptoms.org, which is a great resource that we highlight in the paper. And then it depends on the nature of the symptoms. Motor symptoms, like in, in the case we present, physiotherapy is really critical and really an FND-informed physiotherapy that uses specialized techniques to leverage things like the fact that distraction can improve symptoms into the therapy is critical. Unfortunately, many of our physiotherapists are as poorly educated on this topic as the doctors. And so it's an uphill battle often, especially in in when I'm seeing patients in rural Ontario, to get someone from the physical therapy space that, that, that knows that. So I often fax or send over the guidelines for physiotherapists with these disorders. And we recently gave rounds to our physiotherapists at Sunnybrook on these disorders as well. So there's education piece with our multidisciplinary cl- uh, colleagues as well. And then certainly if there are notable psychological factors at play, which is not uncommon, that then psychotherapy for helping reconceptualize the nature of their symptoms, the nature of this disorder, maybe helping a gradual return to activities when they've previously been fearing such activities because they've been because ex- they exacerbate symptoms, for example. So CBT and other techniques can be important with psychotherapy. And then certainly for patients who do have that the risk factor, which is a strong risk factor when present, certainly when it comes to childhood adverse events, histories of trauma, psychological trauma, sexual trauma, physical trauma, more focused psychotherapies on that aspect, whether it be psychodynamic techniques or other trauma-based techniques, which I'm not trained in as a neurologist, are certainly important too. So I would say that um, those are probably two of the core management aspects and subpatients might need different specialized multidisciplinary care. Like if there is functional speech or swallowing symptoms and a speech language pathologist, it's more functional return to work considerations than an occupational therapist, for example. But there's no magic pill, unfortunately. And we're working on targeted treatments where we could identify these circuits that have become disrupted in the patient's brain and then use, for example, non-invasive brain stimulation techniques to normalize or modulate mm. those circuits that are disrupted. That's kind of a holy grail of this field that obviously isn't in prime time yet. That's really great. I, I love the, how you say that there's just a disruption of the circuit system. I think that's a very accessible way for people to actually understand what's going on with them, that they don't feel like, A, it's all in my head. There is something that's happening that explains my symptom. It's just not something structural. Absolutely. Great. Thank you so much. That was really, I learned quite a lot. Dr. Matthew Burke is the co-author of a paper in CMIJ entitled Functional Neurological Disorders Associated with the SARS-CoV-2 Vaccine. He's a cognitive neurologist at Sunnybrook Hospital. Jula, this is fascinating. What are your thoughts? I was completely enthralled by listening to Peter uh, just explain so eloquently his journey with functional neurological disorder and the impact that it's had on his life. And then, you know, the joyous part of him being able to make a recovery. And Dr. Burke's really just kind of like blew my mind open in terms of just the way to view functional disorders as there's just something that is wrong with the circuitry of your brain. Like it's just 
and the just wiring is off. And that makes so much sense to me. And I really connected with that. And I guess for me, I feel like that is a much more clear way of explaining to patients that doesn't is not condescending, doesn't minimize what they're going through, but just actually gives them an explanation that, you know what? Yes, there's nothing structural that is wrong with you, whether it's neurological or gastrointestinal, but your circuitry is off. And so we just need to help you figure out how to rewire it. And I thought that was really, he said that really beautifully. Yeah, I imagine the the way you initially deliver that diagnosis kind of makes or break it. Sort of, I'm sure you could really turn people off so that they would be less open to further conversations about it if you approached it in a way that made people feel dismissed. Um, and I worry that uh, that probably happens more often uh, than it should because I really resonated with what Peter said. We get so frustrated when we have exhausted our diagnostic pathways. We've relied on specialists who have exhausted their diagnostic pathways. And it it's hard to sort of fall back on what many people would call a diagnosis of exclusion uh, because we are always worried that we're missing something organic. Um, but the way that uh, the way that Dr. Brooks has worded this diagnosis is so helpful. Mm-hmm. A hundred percent. Jola, you're you're a saxophone player, just like Peter. Not like Peter, what? but <laughs> I can play a saxophone. Gotcha. Uh, how did it make you feel hearing about this like six or seven year ordeal of like waiting to be diagnosed and not being able to 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 play his music to do his profession? I it actually made me quite like sick to my stomach in terms of hearing that it was six to seven years of his life stopping. It was just, it was really like, it was just chilling. And I, I'm, I think that, you know, I was speaking to friends who are also physicians. I actually do think a lot of us, we find functional disorders to be terrifying because it's one of those things that you're like, could this happen to me? Absolutely. You know, I'm someone who has bad reflux. As I was listening to this, I'm like, hmm, maybe mine is a functional disorder because despite medication, I still have days where I have really bad reflux. And I think that that's always kind of the fear of like, oh my goodness, what if this is quote unquote, what they used to say in your head. But the way Dr. Burke said it is that it's in your head because your circuits are off. Yeah. And to me, that was actually empowering because you're giving a solution as you're telling the problem. That's right. It makes it tangible. It removes sort of the patient from the blame. This is this is not a patient choice, as as both Peter and mm-hmm. Dr. Burke said. And I, I love the conversation about being able to sort of shorten that time to diagnosis with some of these tests for people who have incongruent symptoms um, so that we can try to speed things up and not have them go through years of specialist appointments and perineoplastic workups and things like sure. that. That's it for this week on the CMAJ podcast. Please, if you can, remember to like or share our podcast wherever you download your audio. I'm Blair Bigham. I'm Mujala Molly, And until next time, be well. Be well.